Welcome back to Raging Seed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP, Louisville. Happy holidays. Re-airing one of my favorite episodes ever today. British novelist Charles Dickens' 1843 classic, A Christmas Carol. Interview with a true Dickens scholar on the back half. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMPLP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to our special holiday episode and 2020 season finale of Read and Succeed. Reading and reviewing English novelist Charles Dickens' timeless 1843 novella, A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas, commonly known as A Christmas Carol. And having a fantastic discussion with Dr. Diane Calhoun French, Vice President for Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College here in Louisville, published Dickens scholar, an individual who has committed her entire professional and adult life not just in service to the academy, but also in service to the English language. Like Dr. Calhoun French herself, the interview with her is an authoritative blend of energy and erudition and places Dickens' classic tale of one of the longest, most transformative Christmas Eves ever very much as a marker in Dickens' own transformation from the late 18th century literary influences of his early career to the tight-knit tapestry of complexity, contradiction, and conscience that defines the novels of his middle and later periods, considered by most scholars to be some of the greatest works of the English language. Speaking of the holiday season and giving, if you have enjoyed the content on Read Succeed this past year or any of the great programs you hear on Forward Radio, please consider giving the station a tax-deductible gift. Visit forwardradio.org forward slash donate to make supporting community radio part of your financial plan. For a $20 donation, you essentially fund an entire day's worth of broadcasting. For a $50 donation, you essentially fund one hour per week of broadcasting for an entire year. Also visit readandsucceed.net to find our upcoming schedule and find the links to Forward Radio and our social media sites. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to us on YouTube. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Charles Dickens' 1843 Victorian-era masterpiece, A Christmas Carol, needs only cursory review because, for those in the English-speaking world at least, most readers, even most non-readers, already know the story by heart and from some of their earliest Christmas memories. On a dreary Christmas Eve in early 19th century London, a cranky, miserly, but 100% credit-worthy businessman named Ebenezer Scrooge chafes under the inconveniences of the Christmas spirit, represented first by his energetic nephew Fred's dinner invitation, which he enthusiastically rejects, and second by his underpaid and overworked employee Bob Cratchit's request for Christmas Day off to spend with his young family, which Scrooge begrudgingly grants. Walking home that night to his dimly lit domicile, Quote, darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it, end quote. Scrooge finds the Christmas spirit itself knocking at his life's door. 
Actually, he sees the ghostly face of his old business partner, Jacob Marley, seven years past and Scrooge's only equal in miserly misery, staring back at him where the door knocker used to be. And when that doesn't have the desired effect, Marley appears as a head-to-toe apparition, bound in money chains, warning Scrooge that if he doesn't turn from his path of greed and exploitation, he too will be forced to wander the earth as Marley now does for eternity, unable to make amends for the error of his ways. To drive the point home, Marley tells Scrooge that three spirits will visit him before the sun rises the next day on Christmas morning. If he does not heed their lessons, his chains in the afterlife will be much heavier and his wanderings much lonelier. Throughout the rest of the night, the three spirits make their appearance in Scrooge's bedchamber. A sprightly ghost of Christmas past transports him to the innocence and romance of his youth before the avarice of his adulthood arrived. A garishly garlanded ghost of Christmas present shows him the holiday joys that are found even in the Victorian poverty of his current day, to which Scrooge himself openly contributes. Best represented in the humble but happy celebrations of the Cratchit family, and in particular their youngest member, the partially disabled Tiny Tim. And lastly, he is visited by a wraith-like ghost of Christmas yet to come, prophesizing the lonely and simultaneously celebrated and uncelebrated death that awaits Scrooge if he stays on his current path. Waking on Christmas morning, Scrooge finds himself a spiritually and morally changed man, and altogether immersed in the Christmas spirit that only a day earlier he dismissed as mere humbug. He sends an errand boy to fetch the largest turkey at a local butcher to be gift-delivered to the Cratchit residence. He invites himself to the Christmas Day meal at his nephew Fred's, and becomes, per Dickens, quote, as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Or, as Scrooge himself declares, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me, and I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest on Read and Succeed is Dr. Diane Calhoun-French. Dr. Calhoun-French is the current Vice President for Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College in Louisville, Kentucky where she began as Dean of Academic Affairs in 1984 at JCTC's predecessor, the Jefferson Community College, after serving as a faculty member at JCTC's Southwest Campus beginning in 1981. Diane received a bachelor's degree in English at Bellarmine College, a master's degree in English at Wake Forest University, and a Ph.D. in English at the University of Louisville, writing her dissertation on British author Charles Dickens' position as a distinctly popular novelist an idea that Diane and I will discuss in today's interview. In 2001, she was named interim president of JCTC, assuming the position of vice president after the appointment of the college's first permanent president in 2001. Diane has also been active with JCTC's regional accreditation organization, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges for more than 30 years, including serving on the Board of Trustees. In 2013, she received the Commission's Meritorious Service Award, and in 2014, she received the inaugural Demetria N. Gibbs Outstanding Sachs Chair Award, and has been instrumental in the development of JCTC's own Read and Succeed Quality Enhancement Plan, intended to help students read more and read more effectively as part of the college's current five-year Sachs accreditation cycle, a program that, while not formally associated with the Read and Succeed radio program on 106.5 FM Louisville, directly informs the spirit of our show as, full disclosure, I, myself, am an employee at Jefferson Community and Technical College. I actually share a wall with Diane's office. Diane is a past president of the National Association for Women in Education, edited their quarterly journal initiatives, and received the association's Esther Lloyd-Jones Distinguished Service Award. She has served as executive secretary of the Popular Culture Association of the South since 1987 and has recently completed a term as the president of the National Popular Culture slash American Culture Association. 
She is a statewide speaker for the Kentucky Humanities Council and regularly publishes and presents papers on topics in her interest areas, which include women's studies, popular culture studies, writing, mystery fiction, all eclipsed by the focus of her highest passion, her five cats. Diane, welcome to Read and Succeed. Thank you. It's good to be here. Merry Christmas, and God bless us, everyone. (laughs) That's our lead into the text that we're going to talk about today, which is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, copyright 1843. But before we talk about Dickens, we want to talk about Diane, who's joined us today. And the question I'm first going to ask Diane, and we ask this question to everybody who's been on Read and Succeed for the last year. That goes from our introductory episode with Dr. April Pennington, who also works at Jefferson Community and Technical College with Diane as well as Dr. Senior Jeter Naslin, the author of Ahab's Wife, and Dr. Frank X. Walker, who was the Kentucky Poet Laureate. And that question is, are you a reader, and where and when did that start? You know, it's very interesting. As part of the workshops that we're doing with Read and Succeed and talking about how to get students to be more engaged in reading and appreciative of reading and develop their skills, we were asked last week to come up with our personal reading histories as a pre-work for the workshop. And so I had a great time putting mine together. I put together a little path. And what I said at the beginning of that was, I can't ever remember not reading. Books have always been just such a part of my life. From the time I can remember, I loved books. And there were two or three things that stood out when I was little. One was that I would go and stay with my grandmother almost every summer down on a farm near Owensboro. And the biggest thing was when the bookmobile came. And so that was huge. You could go take five or six books out of the bookmobile, which came to the Ronnie farm next door. And, you know, I'd come home and read them in two or three days. The other thing I remember was that grandma had up in her attic boxes of books that I think were mostly there from my great uncles who were two bachelors that lived with my grandmother and grandfather. And up there, I found a novel called Who Killed Aunt Maggie, which I'd never heard of, but I started to read. It later turned out, I didn't find this out until, you know, 25, 30 years later, that the author of it was the person who was a best friend of Margaret Mitchell. So it's a Southern murder mystery, but it forever started me on loving murder mysteries. There were also lots of Perry Mason mysteries and other kind of those sleazy covered Mickey Spillane 1950s, you know, paperback novels. And so yeah, the old pulps, the old pulps. pulps. And I, I, I've always just loved the covers of those because they take yep. me back to going upstairs in the attic where nobody can see me and dragging out books I probably shouldn't have been reading at that age. <laughs> and the other thing that stands out for me, particularly talking about Dickens, is that in the ninth grade, I was introduced to Great Expectations. We read it as part of my English class. I had never read Dickens before, and I absolutely fell in love with him. And I didn't all the way through college, never had a Victorian literature course, 
I had one in my master's degree, but I always knew that if I went for a doctorate, I was going to write my dissertation on Dickens because I found him so incredibly wonderful. So I love his work. And today I read all the time. And interestingly enough, the things I read most today are feminist kind of fiction like Margaret Atwood and murder mysteries because I love them so much. But I still go back. I read all of Dickens and I still go back and read it periodically because it is so wonderful to the ear. There's a common theme in everybody who answers that when I ask that question on Read Succeeding, there's always a common theme of everybody who answers that. And this goes back to responsibilities that I think society has. And that responsibility is to our local libraries. And I'll follow up with personal libraries, but particularly our local public libraries. Nearly everybody I know who has serious, committed reading habits in their adulthood were exposed to reading through their local libraries and the bookmobile in their youth. I know in some areas the statuses of bookmobiles is up in the air depending on funding. Like in my in Clark County where I grew up or spent most of my life growing up, the bookmobile was a common fixture in the county. Everybody knew about it. Oh, that was exciting when the bookmobile came. That was a big deal. Yeah, and and the other thing is, like, you're talking about the exposure to not just one or two books within your family. Even within the last couple of months, I saw an article came out on the Internet about having a sizable personal library, especially as a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, and exposing youth to seeing that it's a normal thing to have lots of books in your home. It actually sets up a child's intellectual development long before they are even capable of reading them just the physical exposure to a good, robust personal library. You You know, know, I, I have seen that research as well, and I think it's very interesting. I don't remember particularly having very many books at my home when I was growing up, partly because my parents were not the kind of people who would keep a library. They'd check books out, they'd read them, and then they'd send them back. I, on the other hand, have this real addiction to having books. So I have about seven or 8,000 books. <laughs> and I... I love them, and I can't imagine what I'm going to do when I have to start thinning them out as I run out of room. But I grew up in a household where it was assumed that everybody read because reading was just part of what you did. My brother was a big reader, and I remember my parents reading. And you said you were introduced to Dickens via Great Expectations in high school, as I was. That was the first. I, we, I think we read Great Expectations either ninth or 10th grade, and I can distinctly remember the prisoner, freeing the prisoner from his chains, mm-hmm. and the prisoner returning later in well, Pip. Pip was the name of the main character, correct? Yes, and then the, the prisoner was Magwitch. Magwitch, and I, and I can remember... Even in ninth or 10th grade, you know, I'm in early high school, I knew that instinctively human nature told me that Magwitch is going to return sometime in Pip's life eventually to repay his debt for what he did, to be his benefactor. And, and then, you know, middle of the novel that, that occurs. What was it about Dickens in particular? Because I, I responded, I, I read it, I understood that it was good literature at the time, but I got caught up deeply in Robert Penn Warren in Melville when I was in high school. Wow, that's unusual. I mean, I think I I had a predisposition at that time in my life for the Pequod, for the stuff that was going on in the Pequod, and and for Mm -hmm. uh, all the King's men, Willie Stark, and 
you know, just the nature of just how life was playing out for me, leading my leading me eventually into the military and government. And I understood that Dickens, I I could even then, and these I consider that a pre my pre-reading era, which really didn't manifest itself until I was in my mid twenties. But I understood the nature of Dickens' prose was very, very, very layered and very operating at a very high level. But what was it about Dickens when you read Great Expectations? I mean, what, where did this attachment sort of develop from, which eventually manifests itself in your career and your PhD dissertation? Well, I don't think that I articulated to myself at the time when I was first reading Dickens what it is that I found so appealing. I thought the stories were interesting. I thought the characters were interesting. I liked the way it read. Eventually, as I began to read some more Dickens, I like you, I started predicting what was going to happen. I knew <laughs> the kind of plot that he was yeah. going to do, which was deeply satisfying to me. But I will tell you the truth. I don't know that I that my thinking about what I truly loved most about Dickens really crystallized for me until I had to take my PhD exam. I had one exam. It was completely on Dickens. And my professor, who was going to be coming up with the questions, he'd see me in the hall at U of L and he'd say, oh, I have got the perfect question for you. I can't wait till you get this question. And he would just torment and tease me about that. <laughs> and because he thought it was such a great question. And it was. The question was about adaptations of Dickens and why he was so frequently adapted for screen and even cartoons, musicals, plays, everything. And so I remember talking about all of those things, that he did have these very memorable characters and the descriptions that he had in but I realized ultimately that none of those things is ever to me a substitute or can come anywhere close in experience to actually reading Dickens. And it's because it is Dickens' voice that yeah. I think is so powerful. The way that he speaks, the way I hear him as a narrator, you just think of the beginning of A Christmas Carol where he says, Marley's dead as a doorknob. And then he goes on and saying, you know, I don't know why a doorknob should be deader than anything else. It really is a coffin nail that probably should be the deadest thing. It's the wittiness and the charm. It's a very rich style. You know, one of the things that I remember when I first took my first Dickens class, when I was getting my master's degree, the, the professor asked us as we were reading the first novel, he said, pick out a passage in here that you think is Dickensian. And immediately I went to one of those passages where he's describing a family that's kind of all over the place. The mother's distracted, the father is away, and the kids are all going crazy. And he talks in there about opening a closet and what falls out. And there's a list of literally 60 or 70 things that fall out of this closet. 
And that to me was the essence of Dickens. <laughs> yeah. The imagination that wouldn't just think of telling you five things or six things or seven things, but who gives you this huge Dickensian list of amazingly diverse objects. George Gissing once said that Dickens always gave you the unnecessary detail that his, you know, talking about his imagination being so wide and deep that he saw things all the way to the smallest detail that no other writer would think to imagine, much less to mention. And so I think the voice that I hear speaking to me, the Dickens I hear, is what to me is so incredibly interesting and appealing. It is the persona himself of the author as it comes across in the book. Dickens is truly its own type of voice. I've never read any other author that wordsmithed at such that. I always said Dickens, like he absorbed everything. As the author, he would literally absorb everything that's within his sight and relay it to the reader. And like you said, a closet opens up, 70 items fall out. If he didn't mention one or two, it would fail to be Dickens. Exactly. And I think the thing about Dickens' world is that everything is animate. One of my favorite books on Dickens by, I think it was John Carey, there was a passage in there where he said that Dickens doesn't see any difference between people and furniture and meat. All uh, of those things are animated. And it is the most animated world you ever go into. Everything seems to be alive and has a personality. And so when you are reading those things, you are so engulfed in this very dynamic, animate world that he's created that it's a thrilling place to be. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Hey, friends, don't you just love what you're hearing here on Forward Radio? Don't you just want more? These are the people's airwaves. These are your airwaves. We need you to get involved. Go to forwardradio.org and consider the many ways to put more you in community radio. Whether it's time, talent, or treasure, we need everything you can give to make this radio station happen. At forwardradio.org, you'll find a way to get radioactive with us. For those just joining us, this is an interview with Vice President for Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College and Charles Dickens Scholar, Dr. Diane Calhoun French. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. The Dickens book that we're talking about on today's episode is A Christmas Carol, a timeless work. Most people who haven't even read A Christmas Carol know about the book. Everybody knows who Uncle Scrooge is. Everybody knows who Jacob Marley is. Everybody knows who Tiny Tim and Bob Cratchit are. If they haven't read the book, they've definitely seen many of the wonderful film adaptations. My favorite one is The Muppets, to be honest. I thought that was Michael Caine. <laughs> My is favorite Scrooge. is Scrooge with uh, the musical version with Albert Finney. <laughs> Before we talk about the text and the author, we want to kind of frame the world for the listener of where Dickens himself came from. And I always say my approach to reading and criticism is, is I want to understand the author as well as the era and sort of how the author and the era interacted to produce the work of literature. Because clearly the author can't look too far ahead in the future. Uh, they can only look at the present, the era that they're living in, and, and reflect on eras that came before it. What questions were being answered in the past that were already answered that don't need to be answered anymore? And what questions are in the present that have not been answered? We look at Dickens. He was born in southern England in 1812. 
He dies in southern England in 1870. He suffers a stroke at age 58. He finds himself, I think, naturally in greater London's orbit, both personally and professionally, throughout much of his career. Being in the British literary community or literary professional, London would be the place that you would naturally go to. He also finds himself in the United States at times. His life, however, never leaves the 19th century. Even if he had not died at age 58, maybe whether he would have passed over into the 1900s, we don't know. That's completely hypothetical. All the biographies I've read, they, they seem to describe him and his works in two very distinct adjectives. The first one is he's the greatest English novelist, which I think could be reasonably argued by anybody who reads English novels. And the second phrase is of the Victorian era, the greatest Victorian novels. Dickens was the best of the Victorian age. Obviously, the stature of his literature speaks for itself, but let's talk about the Victorian era in Great Britain. Diane, how would you describe the Victorian era and what sort of questions were being asked by society at that time that Dickens might have been attempting to answer in his writing? Well, I think the Victorian era is indescribably complex and interesting. For a long time in the 20th century, things that were Victorian were looked at as moribund, out of date, not very interesting. And so Dickens and all things Victorian in much of the 20th century suffered from that. But if you think about it, this period was truly a turning point into modern culture. If you think just about Dickens' novels, you have both the coaching ends, which bespeak a time that's 30, 40 years before Dickens, all the way to the railroads, which were coming into yeah. their own. Yeah. You're talking about a time when you've got the empire that England has and the fact that it's really the advent of technology and manufacturing it as we know it. In 1850, what people have sometimes called Victorian noon, you have the Crystal Palace, the huge exhibition, first kind of World's Fair that was set up in Hyde Park and which really showcased Britain's ability now to produce plate glass. Mm -hmm. And so you had technology from all over the world coming to England. And so you really are talking about a time period that was very tumultuous, where you see the past and the trappings of the past, the agrarian past, really butting up against the urban manufacturing created and environment of industry, London. Industry. And if you think about it, the other huge thing that happened in the mid-Victorian era was really the loss of faith that began to happen as evolutionary ideas were coming to the fore. You had archaeology, you had geology so much in England, where there's starting to be these fossils that suggest mm -hmm. that the world is millions of years old and not, as people believe, created something like 300,000 years ago or whatever. Yeah. And so you have that contrast between traditional faith and then all of the things that are happening which are eroding that faith. And if you think about just the contradictions in Victorian society, with the reign of Victorian Albert and all of their children, you know, you have on the throne this model of family life. And on the other hand, 
in Great Britain, you have the highest levels of prostitution yeah. and debauchery in it uh, coexisting with that. So people talk about transitions. The thing to me about the Victorians that's so interesting is that they wanted it all. They really tried to have a kind of equipoise, a time in which all those things could coexist. One doesn't tip over and take the world one way or the other. At that point, there was this kind of optimism about what Britain could be and could have. And so I think Dickens, better than anyone else in his novels, is able to capture that paradox that is at the heart of the Victorian experience and the heart of Victorian literature, where these things that are so different are able to coexist in this world in which you don't necessarily give up one for the other. There are a couple of things that you said about some of the defining things of the Victorian era, and you said railroads. And I was, was, I was prepping for this episode, I was looking at where the Victorian era would have seeped into American society, where are places that we as Americans could see Victorian influence within America in the 19th century. A Christmas Carol was published in 1843. Obviously, at that point, the United States is 17 years out from its Civil War. Most manufacturing in the United States at that time was textiles. We did not have the heavy industry yet that you would have found over in London. But the railroads and the idea of a national railroad system, the the transcontinental railroads, that were just beginning to be built and were built in the United States over the course of the 19th century, is distinctly a Victorian thing. It's an artifact of the Victorian age. I think in many ways, what I gather, and you can correct me if you think this thesis is incorrect, after the tumult of the Civil War is over in the mid to late 1860s, and then the Gilded Age sets in, thinking about authors such as Henry James, Mark Twain to an extent, but definitely James Edith Wharton. Maybe that's when American society had settled down enough to some, where some of these Victorian ideals began to sort of filter in and echo within American society. But if, if you think about where things would have been when A Christmas Carol was published, Dickens was at the same time that he was working on A Christmas Carol. He was writing Martin Chuzzlewit, mm-hmm. which was his novel where part of the action is set in America. He had also, right before that, written a travel log called American Notes, where he talks about being in America. He specifically mentions, for instance, Louisville and the Galt House and thought it was all very uncivilized with pigs running in the street. <laughs> American Notes is very, very uncomplimentary of the American people and particularly American manners and civilizations. He expected to really like America, but he did not really see us as a very positive place. And so that comes up in American Notes, and then it it certainly comes up in, in Martin Chuzzlewit. So I think early on, there is not a sense for him that America has 
adopted any of the kinds of civilizing influences that he believes it should have for for enlightened mid-19th century people. And something else I think that's curious is that Dickens was often writing about a time that was 20 or 30 years earlier than when he actually is writing. There's Hmm. always a sense in Dickens of this, it's kind of reminiscential, it's reminiscing of the past and a past that becomes sort of more golden the further you get away from it. You see that in Dickens novels all the time. And so even though the railroad and the technology was much more advanced than what we tend to see in Dickens novels, it was much more advanced in real life. I think this conflict between machines and mechanized things and the old traditions is something that comes across real strongly in his novels. You also mentioned some of the social ills that were now being found in the cities and related to transportation, technology advanced, jobs themselves, the rise of the quote-unquote central business districts within towns. And I'm speaking as a student of urban economics and public administration at this point. The migration from rural to urban areas, and with that, the swelling of the cities by populations, and with the swelling of those cities, many of the social ills that go along with it. I was reading Claire Tomlin's biography of Dickens prepping for this episode. And Diane, I was shocked at the level of despair and conditions mm-hmm. and and social problems that existed in cities at the volume that they did during Dickens's time. And uh, Tomlin was always a great British biographer was always talking about these long walks that Dickens would go on. He was an avid walker. And it would walk through the whole cross-section of everything that human society is capable of. Just within the proximity of his own city on a daily walk, he could see everything from from the highest level of society to the absolute most morally and economically and socially destitute. And they all get packed into his novels. And so much of what you're talking about is really what drove him. When I was working on my dissertation for Dickens, it was on Dickens as a popular novelist. And that is not a term, I think, that the Victorians would have understood in the way we understand it today. What I mean is, you know, there's this sense now that we have high literature that Mm -hmm. writes about the important things in life that is generally not as popular with or as accessible to, quote, ordinary people, that it is liked by the intelligentsia or, you know, people who are studying it. And contrasted with popular literature, the thing that everybody knows, everybody's read, or everybody's seen adapted. And that's a distinction that Dickens and the 19th century would not have understood. For Dickens, what he wrote needed to be popular because it needed to actually teach the kinds of lessons about the world that you're talking about. The coexistence of this great wealth, these very prudish standards about behavior and decorum, the elaborate dress, the elaborate excessive furnishings that characterize the Victorian period, Mm -hmm. which exists 
alongside and is only actually made possible by the lower classes and the squalor in which they're living. And for Dickens, it was important for him that his novels be read by and reflected everyone, because the point he wanted to make is that those who live in the upper classes can only exist if that lower class exists. And if they think they can separate from it, they're wrong. He has, in one of his novels, Bleak House, he has this wonderful analogy of the high-class woman who from the street sweeper gets cholera. Mm. And it's that idea that you don't escape from those things. Those yeah. things run from the sewer right to your front door. And so this idea that he wanted to write something that would reach everyone. One of Tomlin's arguments in her biography of Dickens was published in 2012. Early in his life, two things were they, were, they were they were transformative and they influenced his style of writing and his career overall. Number one, he had ambitions for the theater. And I think that definitely shows up in his his ability. His works can easily be recited. They almost feel oral in nature. Not every writer, you can read it stuff, but you can read his well, very well. Well, uh, he actually acted them out as he was writing them. He was really? known to do that. He would be writing and he would be working the characters and acting them out as he was writing. So that is very true, that he saw them in a very cinematic or stage-like way. And, and the second thing was his early influence of journalism. He actually got his start doing types of journalism. Maybe it was political journalism. I can't remember exactly. He was a court reporter, actually, court? Okay. at a time when it was very difficult to be a court reporter. And Tomlin's argument was that Dickens saw the social issues around him, and through his journalism, he began to look at government, and the British government in particular, as an instrument for not really solving problems, but as just a mechanism for delay and maybe even corruption. And he said, well, I can reach out to places in society where government can't through my writing. Like, I can get the solutions and the stories and the activism out there well past what public administration can do mid-19th century. I think that's true. And for me, fiction has a persuasive power because your arguments are embedded in real people. They, they may be fictional, yeah. but they're yeah. real. They're, they've, got, they've got a kind of flesh and blood. And so the ability to sway people was so much more accessible to him in fiction than it was from writing essays yeah. or polemics about the things that are wrong with society. It's when he actually made us care about a character yeah. who embodied those ills that he felt like he could make the greatest impact. American examples would be like The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck mm -hmm. or To Kill mm -hmm. a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Mm -hmm. You could read multiple newspaper articles on the Dust Bowl. You could read multiple newspaper articles on uh, race relations in the United States, but you, you could read those texts and you could understand them at a much deeper level and, and become almost personally related to them through those characters. And, you know, it's interesting that you brought up these early influences for Dickens. The other thing that was really a seminal event in his life was that his father sent him to work in a blacking factory mm. when he was young. His father, whom many people believe 
Mr. Macabre in David Copperfield is kind of you know, modeled after someone who never has quite enough money. Very hmm. nice, very lovable, very affable and gracious, but doesn't quite know how to manage finances. And so for Dickens, he hated being there. He was humiliated by being there. And one day his father supposedly walked by and actually saw him working there and took him out. Hmm. Thank goodness for Dickens. Thank goodness for us readers. And so when we talk about Dickens as a novelist, I think we have to remember that he personally embodied so many of the contradictions at the heart of Victorian society that people were trying to somehow hold in both hands at the same time. So that for him, money was important. He believed in his art, but he also had a very keen economic motive for writing. And, you know, it's I think that's quite interesting when you think about A Christmas Carol. You mentioned serialization. And yes, almost I think all of the novels were actually serialized. But A Christmas Carol first came out as a non-serial. It came out and was published in this very beautiful red binding, was written in a matter of about three weeks. And it was written because Martin Chuzzlewit, partly because of the sections that were set in America, was not doing well. And so Hmm. his publishers were talking about perhaps uh, reducing his stipend, his monthly stipend. And so that was very concerning to Dickens because his whole life he worried about having enough money and that that specter of having to go back to that penury that he lived in as a boy. And so he really writes A Christmas Carol primarily to make money, which I think is curious because, you know, we often think about the artist and money as being warring things for Dickens. They were not. And he ended up because he insisted on having this beautiful binding and the end papers and all that at not making very much money from Christmas Carol. But of course, it did start him down that road of having a Christmas book for five years. And if you think about Dickens as well, here's a man who is lauding family values. The things, of course, in A Christmas Carol that so stand out are the hearth and home, family around, the trappings of a good meal. And in the Pickwick Papers, where we see a first Dickensian Christmas, the poor relations are there and they're welcomed and everybody's drinking lots of nog and other kinds of things. And yet, here is a man who actually bricked up his own bedroom so that his wife could not get in his part of it. And then, of course, he eventually divorced her. So he himself was this mass of contradictions. So when we talk about him being a product of the age, he really is. He is that same mixture of competing forces that energized the Victorian age so much, the energy it took to hold those things in equilibrium. And Dickens himself is really very much a product of that and a representative of that world. For those just joining us, this is an interview with Vice President for Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College and Charles Dickens Scholar, Dr. Diane Calhoun French. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net.
Well, in terms of a Dickens scholar, you just gave us a fascinating history on the development of the text of A Christmas Carol, but what are your thoughts on the text itself when you look at it within the entirety of Dickens's career? You know, the tale of Uncle Scrooge and Bob Cratchit. What is it that you hear when, when you listen to this? Because I think everybody hears something different. I, I listen to A Christmas Carol to an audio recitation by Patrick Stewart, no less, every year, and I've been doing so for the past six or seven years. And I hear something in it different every single time, a different lesson, just something I missed maybe the year before. But what is it that you yourself, as a true Dickens aficionado, what do you think about The Christmas Carol? I have to say I enjoy reading A Christmas Carol. It isn't something that I would I would probably not pick it up and read it now, except if I were going to be, you know, I've done it sometimes with book clubs at Christmas and that kind of thing. And it's primarily because what I love so much about Dickens, in addition to his voice, and you do hear the Dickensian voice in A Christmas Carol. And so for that reason, I just love the way he talks and the, the words he uses and how he expresses things as the, the narrator of the story. But what I love is the huge complexity and prolixity of his novels, the way in which you have these hundreds of characters sometimes who come in and out and who have these peculiar crotchets, people might call them, these little habits and ticks. Yeah. And so it's the reason I love novels and not short stories is that I love that complexity that happens over an 800-page novel, which sure. doesn't happen in A Christmas Carol. Now, I will say about A Christmas Carol, something that's interesting People talk about late Dickens and early Dickens. Yeah. And, of course, Martin Chuzzlewit, which he was writing here, I would consider sort of the last of his early novels. And A Christmas Carol comes right at the same time he's writing that. He doesn't then write another big novel for about four years. And you can see when you read the novels of his second period, that they are distinctly different. They are different in tone, but they are also very different in the way that they're written. Up until really A Christmas Carol, and I, I would probably include Martin Chuzzlewit in this too, Dickens novels, if you do like a readability chart on them, mm. where you're looking at what kind of grade level it would be, yeah. they're off the charts. They're very 18th century in terms of these extremely long sentences and, and all of these clauses in them. And they're very difficult to read and they sound old. They sound like an old style. Once you get to his second period, which I think A Christmas Carol sort of starts in terms of the simplicity of the style, hmm. it reads in a, it's, it's, it actually drops in terms of a equivalent grade level from something like 16 or 17 to eight or nine, where his writing became much simpler, much more accessible, and his plotting became much less sort of episode after episode of things happening in a loose way to the kind of tight-knit plot that you would have in something like A Christmas Carol, where everything that happens is really centrally designed to go to this one lesson that Scrooge yeah. 
learns. So I think it's an interesting novel in that it's right on the cusp of that real change that you see from the early to the late Dickens. And for me, the early Dickens is okay. I enjoy it, but I don't get anything like the pleasure I get from reading Dickens from Dombey and Son all the way to the end of his career. Where would you place David Copperfield, published in 1849? Well, David Copperfield, again, think about that. That's the Victorian noon coming out right at the mid-century mark. It certainly is later Dickens in terms of looking Mm. at the style, the complexity of the sentences and the word constructions and the vocabulary, that kind of thing. To me, it's a remarkable novel. David Copperfield. Yes. Well, think about the way it begins when he says, I am born, or so I was told and believe. And then he talks about how he was born with a call on his head, that membrane on his head. But to start his life at the beginning, and he says, to start my life at the beginning of my life, I was born. And so to take that and go all the way through, I think is pretty remarkable. And it does have something that is, I think, a, a key Dickens theme all the way through the history of his novels, and that is this concern with children who are um, orphaned or semi-orphaned or otherwise abused. And again, coming from the experience that he had with his father abandoning him to the blacking factory and his mother allowing it to happen. So there's always that concern about, and if you think even about A Christmas Carol, There's that same sense of family. And Dickens was always preoccupied with responsible parents. Mm -hmm. His novels are filled with the irresponsible or absent parent, and he's concerned with finding the responsible parent. And so in A Christmas Carol, we've got Cratchit as sort of the ultimate responsible parent, you know, will do anything for his children. And of course, Tiny Tim as a child with a a handicap, Mm -hmm. is a very physical embodiment of the child who does not have what he needs to be happy and healthy. But this celebration of the family in that, and then, of course, David Copperfield really takes us through all the surrogate kind of parents that David has as he grows up. And you mentioned Great Expectations. You know, Magwitch is a surrogate parent for Pip, although Pip doesn't know it through most of the novels. So you see all of those kinds of themes that are really running through his career. And I think you also see more strongly in A Christmas Carol than anywhere else, Dickens' belief in the value of memory, that remembering our experiences have a way of connecting us with our better selves that nothing else has. And of course, Scrooge is remembering Christmas past. And also that sense that Christmas is about benevolence. It's about respecting all of the blessings that we have in our lives that we don't otherwise recognize and then sharing those with other people. For those just joining us, this is an interview with Vice President for Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College and Charles Dickens Scholar, Dr. Diane Calhoun French. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Hopefully, I wanted to make this the first of maybe a series of Read and Succeed episodes where we check in. I'm Because I read The Christmas Carol every Christmas anyway, and I'm going to run a Christmas episode on this program. 
and we've definitely got three Christmases left. Hopefully, I can run the show as long as the Read and Succeed program exists at Jefferson Community and Technical College. Oh, you can do it longer than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I always got kind of break things out into three to five year goals because one, you know, when I began this uh, this radio show, I had no idea that a global pandemic was going to set in 30 days right. after it started. Uh, so one one has to be flexible with life, but. Um, one, one last question on Dickens, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. In terms of checking in every Christmas, I think literary critics or artistic critics typically divide an artist's work up into early, middle, and ending periods. Sometimes that can be kind of arbitrary. I think sometimes maybe people will look for patterns to be able to have that sort of triptych organization to the way that they do their criticism. But do you agree with Claire Tomlin's argument that you can look at the Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, The Christmas Carol, which was one of a series of Christmas stories, the other of which are nearly forgotten. And then Martin Chuzzlewit is having an optimism, in, as we'll later learn, or if anybody reads Claire Thomas' biography, Dickens was flesh and blood just like anybody else. He had all the complexities of life and married life, relationships with family members that, that all the rest of us do, and as well as the fallacies. Do you agree with this argument that there was a sort of social and moral optimism and almost a, a level of comedic effect in his early works that maybe kind of tapered out or became jaded in his middle or later periods? I don't know that I would say it that way. As I mentioned, there truly is a break. I mean, the, the early novels are not like the late novels. The early novels to me are, and again, if you think about the way Pick, the first one began, Pickwick, Dickens was hired to put some text to a series of illustrations of this little group that was going to have a sporting adventure. So it started out as kind of a picaresque novel where there's not a lot of plot. It's just one adventure to another. And his other early things, Oliver Twist, Barnaby Rudge, The Old Curiosity Shop, I think they all have more of that kind of 18th century light heartedness about them, although there's a lot of very dark stuff in all of those novels. But to me, what we see in the later Dickens is a mature kind of comprehensive approach to dealing with social issues that mm. is really missing from the early novels. I will say, though, to me, that the humorous Dickens, to me, is much better in the second half of his okay. work. Except for A Tale of Two Cities, which really has very, very little humor in it. And I have to say, is not one of my favorite Dickens novels. I actually have read A Tale of Two Cities, and it's definitely kind of an, a stylistic anomaly, a thematic really anomaly is. for him. And hopefully between now and our Christmas episode of Readings Exceed next year, I'll get myself prepped up on his middle period, and we'll take that apart then. But uh, one last question before we go. Actually, not one last question, but before we wrap this show up, Diane, I just want to give you the opportunity. If you've got any thoughts on how the Read and Succeed program at Jefferson Community College went in 2020 during a pretty out-of-the-ordinary year. Well, I think the uh, Read and Succeed directors, April and Patricia, have done a fabulous job of keeping it going during a pandemic and essentially being able to do a lot of the work they wanted to do, but having to do it in a different medium, which took a lot of preparation on their part. So we do have the learning community of faculty who are figuring out how to consciously use strategies to help make their students be better readers. We have the workshops that a lot of us as faculty and staff have attended, which are about the reading apprenticeship model and how we can 
help students read better, uh, comprehend better, and enjoy reading more than many of them do. So I think it's an extremely important initiative, and I think it's going well. It reminds me of when I had my master's thesis, which was on a popular novel. I did it on the Lord of the Rings Mm. trilogy. But the last question that they asked me when I had my defense of the thesis was, why do you read? And it wasn't a question I was prepared for. And when it came down to it, what I said was that reading enabled me to live alternate lives that I would never be able to live otherwise, to consider things, vicariously experience things, learn about things that were outside of the realm of my experience, but that gave me some sense of living through them and in them. And so my biggest hope as we roll out Read and Succeed is knowing what reading can do to enrich people's lives. I'm hoping that we can inculcate in our students some of the love, some of the belief that reading really can give them alternatives to their ordinary lives and take them places, enriching, exciting places that they couldn't otherwise go. So we haven't had the opportunity to engage students as much with Read and Succeed this year because we've been in pretty much a virtual environment. But my real hope is that as we come out of this lockdown, that we'll be really able to focus on that. I know what reading has meant for my life, and I would really love others who don't know what it can do to experience that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the book we review today is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and our guest is Dr. Diane Calhoun French, Vice President of Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College. Diane, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was a oh, great it's fun. Always fun to talk about Dickens. Dr. Diane Calhoun-French, Vice President for Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Well, hey there, friend. We want to thank you for listening to Forward Radio. But you know what we really want you to do? We want you to get radioactive with us. The Access Hour is your opportunity to get behind these microphones and make media that matters with us. This is a community radio station, and it doesn't happen without you. And if you're not ready to do a weekly program, well, the Access Hour was designed for you. It airs every Wednesday at 2 p.m., Thursdays 11 a.m., and Fridays at 1 p.m., and you could be on the next Access Hour. Go to forwardradio.org, click participate, and Pitch us your show idea today. That's it for this episode of Read and Succeed. On behalf of Forward Radio, Read and Succeed, and myself, we are wishing everyone a happy holidays and a very happy new year. Please be safe. It's never about the books on here. It's about you. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>